Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. In 1964, passage of the Wilderness Act promised Americans that there would be lands designated for preservation and protection in their natural condition. It was a promise from Congress that the American people of present and future generations would be able to enjoy the benefits of an enduring resource of wilderness. When President Johnson signed the act into law, he said that if future generations are to remember us with gratitude rather than contempt, we must leave them a glimpse of the world as it was in the beginning, not just after we got through with it. So where do things stand with that promise today? Has it lived up to its lofty goals? To seek an answer to that question and to get a better understanding of management of wilderness areas and potential wilderness in the country, We've invited George Nickus and Dana Johnson to join us. George is Executive Director of Wilderness Watch, a national organization dedicated to defending the nation's national wilderness preservation system and keeping it wild. And Dana is the organization's policy director. We'll be back in a minute with that discussion. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures in volunteering and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. George, Dana, welcome to The Traveler. Ah, Thanks for thank you. us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Hey, I appreciate your time. But before we get deep into the conversation about wilderness, um, what is Wilderness Watch? How old is the organization and what does it try to accomplish? Well, Wilderness Watch was founded in 1989 um, by a uh, former Forest Service Wilderness Program leader. Um, in fact, the first Wilderness Program leader that the Forest Service had and a person who helped write the policies and regulations for implementing the Wilderness Act. Um, his name was Bill Worf. And, uh, and Bill and a wilderness ranger and a law school student just, uh, got involved in some wilderness management issues and sort of discovered that there weren't any conservation groups that were focusing on uh, what's happening to the National Wilderness Preservation System once areas are designated as wilderness. Most of the focus of the conservation movement then, and I would say even now, is on trying to add areas to the wilderness system. And um, Wilderness Watch's role, if you will, is trying to make sure that we're minding the wilderness store, that we're making sure that places that are uh, designated are being protected and managed to preserve those reasons why we have a wilderness system. Yeah, and we're going to get into some of those issues in, in a little bit, but 
you know, while passage of the Wilderness Act might lead one to believe it's easy to establish official wilderness in the United States, it's still a challenge in some places, no? I mean, I say that because across the roughly 85 million acre national park system, there are some 70 million acres envisioned as wilderness. And yet, uh, while 44 million acres have received official congressional blessing as such, another 26 million acres are in somewhat akin to administrative limbo. I mean, some of those 26 million acres are in incredible places that you would have thought long ago had official wilderness. Places like Yellowstone, where there's more than 2 million acres of potential wilderness, and Glacier National Park, where there's uh, roughly 1 million acres. Big Bend National Park, they've they're been pushing recently to have almost 600,000 acres designated as official wilderness. Why is there such a problem to get these uh, deals done? Well... I think there are two things, Kurt. Um, you know, most of those 44 million acres that are designated are in Alaska, and they were all designated under the pretty much under the Alaska National Interest Land Conservation Act in 1980. So that was 45 years ago almost. And you know, as one who 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 worked for many years uh, with organizations trying to get wilderness designated, and in my case, it was in Utah within the conservation movement there was a sense that, well, the lands that are really threatened are on the national forests or lands that are administered by BLM, you know, oil and gas development, logging, et cetera. There were fewer threats in the parks. And so the conservation movement hasn't made a priority of pushing Congress to designate wilderness in the national parks. And I think the National Park Service itself has always had a resistance to wilderness. It opposed the wilderness, uh, the wilderness bill when it was being pushed in 1964, said it's unnecessary, we don't need it, and we don't want it. And it doesn't like the, um, if you will, some of the discretion uh, that the Wilderness Act takes away from park managers in terms of how they manage those backcountry areas. So the Park Service hasn't been really pushing to get wilderness designated in the parks either. So I think it's a combination of those two things, which is why places like Yellowstone and, and uh, uh, the Grand Canyon and uh, the Grand Teton National Park and Glacier National Park and many of our uh, large national parks haven't been protected as wilderness. It seems awful odd. I mean, you know, people probably view the National Park Service with the, the, the most admiration, possibly outside of the, the Postal Service. And yet, <laughs> and yet, you know, there are these, you know, 26 million acres that are just dangling out there. And, and yes, they're supposed to be managed as uh, official wilderness, but there's nothing standing in the way of an administrative change, you know, depending on uh, who's in the White House and, and what their decisions are. Um, I know the former superintendent of Big Bend National Park really wanted to, to see a wilderness legislation introduced into Congress to protect roughly 600,000 acres, um, I think it's 583,000 um, and change, from future decisions of Congress or administrations down the road where they say, well, you know what, it'd be nice to put a new road in there to, to build a new lodge because there's not enough places for people to stay in the national park. And uh, you know, or maybe there's a, a valuable ore deposit that um, all of a sudden, um, because we're searching for rare earth minerals everywhere, um, we should be able to go in there and mine those. Um, is there a contradiction there someplace? 
you know, if the Park Service thinks it, it doesn't need official wilderness um, designation, that it can manage things properly? Yeah, I think George is right. A, a lot of it is um, agencies, including the National Park Service, wanting to retain their discretion um, and how they're managing a lot of these areas. And I think there's a misconception, you know, within the public generally that because something is within um, the purview of the National Park Service or is designated as a national park, that it has protection um, that is similar or akin to what wilderness protection will provide. And so I think a lot of the focus um, isn't on designating wilderness and national parks, but I think there are a couple of other issues at play too. Um, and one of those is, you know, we've, we've sort of lost our wilderness champions in Congress. Um, it's getting harder and harder to find people who are willing to bring forward energy for new wilderness designations within Congress. Another issue that we're seeing that I think probably plays into a lot of this is um, the agencies, including the National Park Service, are really defunding their wilderness programs. Um, they don't have the wilderness budgets and they don't have um, staff who are sort of trained in the history of the Wilderness Act. They're not trained and steeped in wilderness values. And so the energy within the agencies for a lot of wilderness um, designation is also diminishing quite a bit. I think there's quite a few factors at play as to why it's more challenging now to get wilderness designated. And then when we do get a designation bill that comes through, to get a bill that is relatively clean by wilderness standards and not full of a lot of special provisions that exempt things that are otherwise prohibited in wilderness. So things like motorized uses or buildings or um, intervention, ecological interventions. We're seeing more and more of that in new wilderness uh, designating bills that are coming out. Now that said, um, late in the, the Trump administration, you know, the Dingle Act got passed and I believe that added uh, uh, quite a bit of wilderness um, in California to, uh, I believe, Death Valley and I don't know if it was Joshua Tree or Mojave National Preserve. Um, so that was a big step forward, no? It was. The, the Dingle Act was actually another example of, and I'm assuming we'll probably get into this a little bit in the podcast later, but uh, another example of special provisions and wilderness bills um, that ended up being uh, or could be fairly problematic. And I, I know uh, we'll talk in a little bit about the Protecting America's um, Rock Climbing Act, right. uh, the Park Act, the Dingle Act, um, included a provision within the Emory County portion of that bill. Emory um, County, Utah. Right. That has language fairly similar to um, the Protecting America's Rock Climbing Act, um, and it was exempting um, fixed anchors for rock climbing in wilderness. And um, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about how recreation pressures are increasing in a lot of our protected places, including um, designated wilderness. But the the Dingle Act is a good example of that. Yeah. And I don't know, George, did that also include um, bighorn provisions? I can't recall. I don't believe so. This is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today with George Nickus and Dana Johnson of Wilderness Watch about wilderness issues across the United States and specifically in the national park system. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. 
The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Maximize your savings with Interior FCU. Explore the benefits of opening multiple certificates to diversify your savings strategy. Discover how Interior FCU's range of certificate options can help you achieve your financial goals with competitive rates and flexible terms. Learn more at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Dana and George, there, there have been other movements in, in the park system of late to um, formalize wilderness agreements, um, wilderness designations. Isle Royal National Park um, currently is moving towards um, rewriting its wilderness management plan. And it, it's kind of interesting because um, when the, the park was designated back in 1976, I believe Congress designated roughly 98% of the land in Isle Royale, which was uh, designated many years before that, um, designated as wilderness, and uh, later additions for wilderness designation brought the total acreage to around 99% of the park. Um, and currently, the proposal they're talking would add, I believe, another 93 acres um, to official wilderness. Um, Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve in Alaska just approved a, a plan for managing roughly 2.8 million acres of wilderness lands and waters in the park. As I mentioned earlier, Big Bend National Park supporters there are, are watching movement in Congress to see if they can get nearly 600,000 acres designated as wilderness. Um, and down in uh, Arizona, Wapaki National Monument, there's there's talk there about um, designated official wilderness. So there, there has been some some efforts in some areas in the park system to, to add wilderness officially. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, you know, the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act um, that has been introduced in Congress would also designate wilderness in the big parks in the Northern Rockies, like Glacier, Yellowstone, Grand Teton, and uh, that would add substantially to the uh, to the uh, wilderness system, at least in those parks and the Northern Rockies. Yeah, I vaguely vaguely remember that. What exactly does that um, that act provide for? Well, it's it's uh, it would designate about twenty three million acres of wilderness in five uh, states: Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and then Eastern Washington and Eastern Oregon. Most of that would be on national forests, but it would designate wilderness in those national park units that are in those states as well. So uh, uh, it's, you know, it's it's the wildest bill on the hill, as it's called, and uh, would designate a lot of wilderness. Um, and it's a and it's a good clean bill. It it would it would make sure that the areas that were designated would be administered in accordance with the Wilderness Act. And which itself, you know, was the was was a compromise. Um, and it kind of set the floor for what wilderness would be. And as Dana mentioned, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of subsequent wilderness bills keep lowering that floor by 
by providing all kinds of special exemptions for things that could occur in wilderness. So anyway, there are there are bills out there to designate more wilderness in the parks, but I don't know that any of them are are going anywhere right now. Well, and I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that northern legislation. Um, I believe the the Red Rock Wilderness Act proposal is still alive out there. And doesn't that date back to your days in in Utah many decades ago, George? It does, but it, but, but it, it's it's uh, primarily focused on bureau land management administered areas <laughs> as well. So uh, it kind of gets back to that thing we talked about, where where the uh, you know the focus is on the areas that are perceived as most threatened, and in the case of Utah, those are the areas administered by BLM. Yeah. Yeah. But you look at the the political makeup in these states, you know, in Montana and Wyoming and Utah for sure and Idaho. Um, is there the political will to see these bills move or are they just going to um, ignore them and, and let them set in the background? Well, you know, I I don't know. I I, I can't say that there isn't any political will. Um, I think... It, in my experience, two things have changed, and Dana touched on one of those, which is we've lost, we've really lost the wilderness champions in Congress. Um, those people who, I remember when I was working in Utah, John Cyberling was the chair of the subcommittee in Congress that dealt with wilderness bills, and we didn't have a wilderness-loving delegation in Utah at that time either. Um, but Cyberling would twist their arms and Cyberling would say, look, you know, these are federal lands. These are national lands. You have a lot of, of great potential wilderness in Utah and you guys need to step up to the plate and do something. And and then Cyberling would would represent sort of the conservation interest in those negotiations and discussions with the local delegations. That's not happening anymore. We don't have, uh, and uh, you know, we've we also had champions back then, like Congressman Bruce Vento, who used to hold hearings on the implementation of the Wilderness Act and on the and on whether or not existing wildernesses were being protected. And I can say, since since the early '90s, there hasn't the only hearings that have been held on the wilderness on the Wilderness Act and implementation have been by opponents of wilderness wanting to beat up on agencies for being too protective or whatever. So we've lost that um, emphasis at the national level. But the other thing that's happened is, unfortunately, I think the opponents of wilderness have realized that wilderness is sort of a holy grail for the conservation movement. And so they now perceive wilderness bills as ways to get things that they could never get otherwise. They could never float legislation to give away a bunch of federal land to local interests or private interests. But they say, oh, you, you enviros wanna, want a wilderness bill? Well, get, look at all the things that we want uh, to get here. And so now we're getting these wilderness bills that mandate logging in other lands that, that, that establish off-road vehicle areas, snowmobile areas, mountain bike areas, all these other things that can't stand scrutiny on their own and wouldn't happen. Um, uh, the opponents of wilderness are starting to say, well, geez, 
we know the envirals want a wilderness bill. So let's let's come up with all the kinds of things we want and let's package those. And that'll be the quid pro quo to get a wilderness bill passed. And so there's that kind of thing going on. And that's I think that's kind of how, for example, we mentioned the Emory County bill a few minutes ago uh, in Utah. Uh, you know, Congressman Curtis wanted all those other things. He didn't necessarily want wilderness in the San Rafael or Desolation Canyon, but he wanted a bunch of land uh, for the state of Utah and a bunch of other things. And so that's how the bill got passed. And that's that's become a pattern uh, with these quid pro quo bills um, that has made it potentially more possible to get wilderness bills passed. But it also makes them so that they're not really just wilderness bills anymore, but they're this this sort of uh, quid pro quo style legislation. Well, I guess that that begs the question of whether the the wilderness champions are are willing to give away some of those things. Yeah, well, they have been. That's for sure. Is that a bad you know, thing? One of the nice things about NARIPA, the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act, as, as George mentioned, it's a pretty clean bill, but it's also looking at wilderness designation and just land protection from more of a holistic lens. Um, and it's protecting a very large area that's sort of taking into consideration, you know, wildlife um, travel patterns and you know, which habitats we need to connect um, and looking at that through a bigger, broader lens um, mm -hmm. rather than the typical fragmented um, lens that we generally use to um, protect land. So there, NARIPA, even though it hasn't historically had a lot of legs in Congress, it's still holding its own um, and it's uh, likely to be reintroduced again. Um, and I think that that's a bill worth watching um, and hopefully something that we can model future wilderness bills off of when, when did it first surface George oh probably the early 90s yeah it's been 91 and it's yeah. had it's had hearings a number of times in congress but um as as you indicated kurt earlier there there aren't a lot of wilderness champions in this part of part of the world you know when when most you know in the 80s most Western states were get, having wilderness bills passed, so-called rare two bills, designating wilderness in the national forests. And uh, Idaho and Montana kind of missed out because we just didn't have the wilderness, you know, the leadership here. And, and you know, I, 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 I hate to be too much of a, a uh, try to sound like a political wonk from D.C., but the other the other thing that I think made it difficult, especially in Montana, is because we had we had always had at least one or two or three Democrats in our in our congressional delegation, the national leadership wasn't willing to push as hard uh, against those Democrats who were saying, I don't want to be pushing a wilderness bill. It's not in my political interest to do that. Perhaps um, we've had champions like that in Montana, people like Lee Metcalf, who was like, damn rights, we're going to push a wilderness bill. But the Democrats that have come after him have not had that desire to stand up and fight for wilderness and be willing to take some political heat for it. And the, and the, and the 
Democrats at the national level haven't been willing to push them. So we just kind of lost out uh, here and in Idaho um, on on wilderness in that regard after the you know after the '60s and '70s. So um, you know it's it's a tough political climate out there, um, but it it's going to take national leadership. You know the, the history the history of land preservation, and it's certainly true of the national parks is that they are very often opposed by local officials when talk of establishing a national park is put out there. And then eventually you have the park and then pretty soon everybody loves it and it becomes a, a great part of the pride of the, of the state or the local area. And um, But it takes somebody willing to, to go out there on a limb and, and resist those parochial uh, interests uh, and short-term interests to do it and make it happen. And I think that's what we're kind of lacking right now. Yeah, it's interesting um, because you're absolutely right. There are local communities that would love to have a national park in their backyard because of the, the economic dollars that it brings in. Um, we've seen um, polling from um, recent years of the Intermountain West, and it seems like there's a, a great amount of support for more protected areas. Um prevent them from being logged or mined or whatnot and, you know, left open for recreation. And yet you've got the elder statesmen, for lack of a better description, um, in the congressional delegations who don't agree. And so as long as they don't agree, nothing's going to change. Right. Well, their feet have to be held, uh, held to the fire. And I think it's, it's certainly, uh, part of the reason it hasn't happened is that the citizenry hasn't been willing to hold their feet to the fire. Yeah. Citizenry yeah. says, as you say, yeah, we want these, we want these places protected, but, um, but when the politicians don't do it, we don't hold them accountable for it. This is Kurt Repencheck. We're talking today about wilderness issues across the country with uh, George Nickus and Dana Johnson from Wilderness Watch. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PetreroGroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O Group. Com. 
So George and, and, and Dana, um, before the break um, and earlier in the conversation, we were talking about um, different threats to wilderness areas, official wilderness, um, talking about um, how wilderness bills were somewhat watered down to allow um, some different uses. Can, can we start with the Dingle Act? Um, because as I mentioned, I think it, it designated a million acres or more of official wilderness. And you, you say there was um, not poison pills, but but some, some trade-offs that allowed that to go through. I was wondering if you could be more specific. Well, as I mentioned, there is a um, provision that I believe is specific to the Emory County, Utah portion of the bill that is exempting the use of fixed anchors for recreational climbing um, in wilderness. And fixed anchors are installations um, which are traditionally prohibited um, by the Wilderness Act. And so this is um, one of the first bills, and I actually believe the only bill, maybe aside from the Park Act, um, that has uh, allowed this exemption in wilderness. And I don't, George, I don't know if you know of any other specific special provisions in the Dingle Act aside from that. That's the one that I'm the most familiar with. Um, I, I, I believe... Um... Dana, that it also has some special provisions for sort of wildlife management activities. I I don't know if it's specifically dealt with the with waters like some of the Nevada bills have, but um, there were some uh, special exemptions made for that. You know, if we could if we could just zoom out a little bit to go, you know, let's go back to why we have a wilderness bill, why we have a wilderness system. And, you know, the, 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 uh, the guy who's responsible for that is a guy named Howard Zonizer, who, who at the time was the executive director of the Wilderness Society. And he used to, he actually wrote the wilderness bill and was its chief lobbyist all those years. And, and uh, a great champion. And Zonizer used to always say, we're not fighting progress, we're making it. And he used to respond to, to claims, you know, a lot of people think wilderness designation is, is out there just to prevent things from bad things from happening, logging, mining, et cetera. But the, the, the real purpose of the Wilderness Act was it was for something, not against something. And it was for this idea that we needed to show some humility and some restraint in the way we interacted with, with the environment and with the world around us. And, um, and the, the key phrase in the Wilderness Act is that this, these are places that are untrammeled and untrammeled by humans. And this is, that's a word that Zonizer very specifically picked because it's the idea that we're just going to allow these places to be and this is this is kind of where nature reigns and we're not going to insist that the kinds of things we do everywhere else we're going to do here we're going to leave some places to nature and that whole idea of humility and restraint is so fundamental to the wilderness act and 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 if you read a lot of the history uh, and, and the people who were fighting for the wilderness bill back then it was it wasn't just wilderness that we were trying to preserve it was trying to build a, a, a different way of looking at the world. 
um, at, at this, these concepts of humility and, and restraint. And John Eiser was driven partly by the fact that he witnessed what happened with the atomic bomb. And he was working for the government at that time. And, and, he, and that's when he kind of moved out of it and said, you know, we have the power to destroy the world. We need to have a different way of interacting with the, with the planet. And Wilderness Bill was all part of that idea that humans need to learn to practice some humility and restraint, or we're going to destroy uh, this beautiful uh, blue planet we live on. And what we're missing in, in a lot of the discussion around wilderness is that commitment to those fundamental values of restraint in how we deal with not just wilderness, but with nature in general. And so, but what and what we've seen in wilderness bills, because so many people view wilderness as just the place to stop bad things from happening and a good place to recreate, is we see increasing demands from all kinds of special interest groups wanting exceptions in wilderness. And and people saying, well, it's easier to get it passed if we make exceptions for all these different groups. But it's also promoting that idea that we none of us have to practice restraint, <laughs> you know. And so we've had, you know, legislation for many years uh, by mountain bikers, for example, trying to get mountain bikes in wilderness. And we've had to fight that off uh, year after year. We've had uh, outfitters and guides pushing for exceptions that would allow uh, for, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of facilities, et cetera, to to enhance their, their operations for outfitting and guiding. And, and now as, as we're talking about this park act, we've had efforts by, by uh, uh, some in the climbing community who want to be able to use fixed anchors in wilderness and create these, you know, developed trails up, up the cliffs uh, instead of using removable protection and the like. And they've been trying to get into wilderness and, and with 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 limited success with the with the with the Wilderness Act. So now they want to amend the Wilderness Act so that they don't have to practice any sort of restraint uh, in wilderness, that they can have their special exceptions. So there's always groups, fish and wildlife agencies always demanding, oh, they want to use helicopters in wilderness to do all of their management and they want to build artificial water tanks so that they can have more of certain game species and they want to modify habitats so that they can have more of the species they they want. And so it's this constant pressure uh, by managers and by interest groups to want to make exceptions to those to those very safeguards that were in the wilderness bill to protect these areas from that kind of not not only developments but attitudes that always want to bend nature to our will. And, um, and so I think that's what's exemplified in both the Emory County bill, the concerns we had with that, but in this park act that we have now, which is kind of the first real chink in the wilderness acts armor to say, no, we're gonna make an exception for a specific recreation group to have what they want. Hell, snowmobilers always argue they should be allowed to go to wilderness because when they when the snow melts, there's even there's no evidence they were ever there. So what does it matter if we allow snowmobiles? And so it's it's this constant pressure to instead of 
saying these are wilderness areas. We need to show restraint. It's this idea that to hell with that. I, I we want to do what we want to do where we want to do it, and we're going to try to get if, if we've got the horsepower politically, we're going to force it through. And I think that's what makes that whole issue so important. Um, it goes way beyond the notion of fixed anchors. And it strikes at this heart of whether or not we're going to make exceptions for certain interest groups to have their way in wilderness. Yeah, I remember during the one of the debates over the years about whether mountain bikes should have access to, to official wilderness. And the argument against it, one of the arguments against was, well, bikes are mechanized. And the Wilderness Act prohibits mechanized as well as mechanical vehicles or whatever inside official wilderness. What about a kayak that has a rudder system? Or what about your propane stove that, you know, uses that Petzl igniter to, to light up and you can control the flame and whatnot? Um, are those exceptions that are allowed into wilderness? Yeah, they always have been. Um, I, I think I think part of the the distinction is the Forest Service, when it came to transport, used to say if it has a wheel, um, that's that's a problem. Uh, but of course, it also applies to things like hang gliders and stuff like that that have always been prohibited by the agencies. The, the, the key with the mechanical thing is, is transport. Uh, it's mechanical transport. And it, to the extent that, that those, those mechanics are moving you down or, 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 or are increasing the, you know, the, the, the moving you down the, the trail faster, increasing the output of the human energy, you know, people call it mountain bikes and say they're human powered, but I guarantee all those gears and and pedals and everything are on there for a reason. Uh, it, it increases your your output quite a bit. But so I so there's a there's both a a uh, uh, a mechanical advantage component to that, and there's also a you know a tradition and a history. You know, people have used canoe paddles forever, and there's obviously some advantage to using that. But it's always been considered a primitive or traditional way of travel. And I think that's where the distinction comes in. When you start talking about small gadgets, it's one of the funniest things, actually, Kurt, is in the original uh, regulations that the Forest Service wrote for implementing the Wilderness Bill. One of the things they exempted were shavers. <laughs> I just, I've always got a kick out of that because I just see these you know, uh, these old forest clean, clean cut, clean shaven forest rangers had to be able to use their, their electric razors and recreationists in the backcountry, I suppose. I don't know how many of them did, but I always found that was along with flashlights and cameras. That was one of the, the uh, uh, sort of motorized equipment, things they call powered by a non-living power source right. that were allowed. Uh, I, I think there's a you know a practical component too, and all and, and but a lot of these things will be challenged. I think in these as technology keeps advancing the way it is, we're we're, we're at a point where somebody could have a fully electrified camp in the backcountry with their solar 
uh, panels and their batteries and all this other sort of sort of stuff. And it just it just begs for us to again, I go back to this idea of restraint, but it's like we need to we need to remember why these places were set aside and what those important values are and try to maintain those because we can argue forever about exceptions, exceptions, exceptions. And that if we're are always arguing about exceptions, we're having the wrong discussion. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think it, George really eloquently described the reason behind a lot of these restrictions. And I think that there's a tendency a lot of times to look at them as sort of rules for the sake of rules, rather than zooming out and kind of looking at the bigger picture of what we're trying to protect. Um, and the values underpinning that, as, as George mentioned, this the idea of humility and restraint. And if you look at a map of the United States, um, if you if you go to wilderness.net, they have a nice map there where you can see all of the areas that have been protected as wilderness. It's really a very small percentage of land in the lower 48 um, that is protected by wilderness. It's less than 3%. Wilderness really is the last refuge for a lot of other species that are having a difficult time existing alongside humans on this planet. Um, and so the restrictions on things like mechanized travel and motorized uses is really, there's a purpose behind that. And it's this sort of acknowledgement that we have a tendency to kind of overtake um, every inch of land and every inch of space, um, whether it be for logging or for buildings or development or recreation. Um, and so all of these restrictions that are embedded within the Wilderness Act are sort of just a, a means of protecting this last refuge. And every exception that we're looking at, I think we have a tendency to look at that in a vacuum, whether it be for fixed anchors or whether it be for mountain bikes and mechanized travel. Um, but but really, it's it's this tiny little you know, piece of wild land that we're trying to protect. And with every user group demand that comes at this protected space, the refuge grows smaller. And so I think it's really a line in the sand that we have to hold. And there's a there's a reason behind that and that it's, it's not always about us. Um, we really need to exercise restraint now more than ever. Yeah. In a, in a few minutes we have left, I'm, I'm curious, I know um, your organization has spoken out against the, the Park Act and not sure where that legislation is going to go, if anywhere. What, what other um, wilderness issues are you working on across the country? Well, there are a lot of old things, <laughs> old recurring issues that we're continually um, dealing with. A lot of those are things like helicopters, in wilderness for, for various reasons, um, reconstructing old buildings. Th those things have been issues uh, that have been around for a long time. Some of the things that we're seeing that are, are gaining momentum are things like um, uh, ecological interventions in wilderness, uh, particularly with climate change on our doorstep um, where the landscape is changing and there's a strong tendency from wilderness managers to try to maintain kind of static conditions within wilderness areas or to manage for desired conditions. I think a big example of that is at Isle Royal, where, you know, climate change, we're not seeing uh, ice bridges 
regularly form um, to link the island to the mainland Canada. And um, the moose population took off. The wolf population, you know, fell to two two individuals. Um, and so the Park Service, after a lot of thought and planning and discussion, decided that they had to intervene and bring in wolves to try and balance out the moose population. I mean, is that... Right. Is that permissible? I mean, is that okay? That That's a perfect example of the ecological interventions issue. And we, we opposed what happened um, at Isle Royal. And part of that is because this is, it's an island ecosystem and island ecosystems are highly dynamic by nature. And in this particular case, I, I can't remember when wolves first arrived on the island, but it wasn't that long ago. I feel like it was mid-century, maybe the 50s or the 60s. And they've kind of gone back and forth with ice bridges um, over time. And as you mentioned, you know, there's certain years where the ice bridges aren't there. Um, and there's some years where they are now, and that's likely to continue changing. But for whatever reason, the wolves of Isle Royale decided that the island was not a place <laughs> that they wanted to stay. And a lot of them took off uh, from the island and the park service because, you know, in part because of the moose um, population boom on the island, decided to bring in more wolves from the mainland. And so they went and captured um, wolves and I believe brought them in um, via either boat or helicopter um, and dropped them back off on the island. And it was kind of funny Shortly after they did that, there was another ice bridge that formed and the wolves that they brought to the island took off <laughs> again. Yeah, and one, so, one or two of them. Right. And so it's it's sort of this, I mean, it's a unique microcosm um, because it is an island um, and because of the unique um, ecological situations there, particularly with ice bridges and the um, moose population. But wolves haven't always been there. And so we have this tendency to want to maintain whatever conditions have been present, you know, maybe since an area was designated as wilderness, or we we choose some other benchmark um, and try to maintain those conditions. But in a lot of places, for a lot of reasons, those conditions are not going to be sustained over time. And we have to decide whether there are going to be areas that we set aside where nature gets to play whatever hand it's dealt. Um, and that's generally what we advocate for. Well, do you think the the state of biodiversity today begs some human intervention? Well, I think the state of biodiversity today is a result of too much human intervention. And I don't think the solution is even more of it. Um, you know, Isle Royale, I think, is a is a great example because in part because, you know, the 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 predator prey interaction that dominated that island for most of the time that certainly since European settlement was was lynx and, and caribou and they're both gone and there was no effort to bring either one of those back but then you had this charismatic species the wolf that wandered onto the island in the 1940s and persisted for 60 or 70 years 50 years whatever and then began to blink out and but it was a charismatic species that people would like to study, that visitors like to see, and therefore they it was we got to get we got to get wolves back on the island, and so we brought wolves back on the island and other islands near there. Um, the problem is that wolves. The problem I'll put that in quotes is that wolves are eating themselves out of house and home, 
and the prey species are disappearing. And so it's like, well, what, what, what do we do then? We're going to start bringing prey species back to, to feed the wolves. And it's that kind of, it's that kind of uh, intervention attitude that, that is so prevalent. Um, yes, we have a biodiversity crisis um, in the world as much as we do a climate crisis. Um, I'm not sure that humans are doing such a good job of, of managing that. And I think, you know, I guess I guess part of it is, um, Kurt, is, is there are those of us who trust, you know, millions, if not billions of years of evolution more than we do humans that that have all kinds of things going on in a very, very short time frame that we function under. Uh, and nature and, and wilderness was a place where we said, you know what, we're going to see how nature deals with these kinds of things. And maybe we'll learn something by having these controls out there, if you will, uh, where nature is having to deal with climate change is a good example. Climate change is affecting the whole globe um, in these 3% of areas, as Dana described, uh, maybe we should let nature deal with climate change and let's see what happens versus all the places that humans are intervening. Yeah, interesting. We're going to have to leave it there. George, Dana, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a, been a provocative uh, discussion and we'll have to revisit it and see where some of this wilderness legislation goes um, down the road. Thanks, well, Kurt. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. Thanks for the opportunity to visit with all your listeners. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. And thanks to your interest in these shows, there have been more than 650,000 downloads of Traveler podcasts since we launched them back in February of 2019. That's an incredible amount of interest in national parks and the stories that flow from them. In fact, each year, more than one and a half million readers and listeners turn to the Traveler for news about national parks, endangered species, protected areas put at risk. And with more and more demands for coverage, there must be revenues to make that coverage possible. To raise some support, we've been holding a fundraising campaign this month to help pay for that coverage. If each reader and listener sent us just 50 cents a year, the Traveler would be financially healthy, our coverage would be much broader and deeper, our future would be insured. Now, we understand it's August, school is starting across the country, families are squeezing in their last vacations of the summer. But without your support, The Traveler will add to the list of news organizations that went dark. If you look forward to Traveler's coverage, please consider a monthly donation of $10. We can't do it without you. You can find a donation page on nationalparkstraveler.org in the upper right-hand corner. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. Composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. 
Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.